So you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. So I've entitled my message this morning, The Parable of the Spoiled Brats. Have you heard of that parable? You haven't studied this in Sunday school? The Parable of the Spoiled Brats? Uh, Now, it's not one of these kind of brats. Those are delicious. Uh, And it's not this. How many of you had one of these? I pity you. You had a Subaru Brat, really? The cool thing about those cars is you've got to sit in the back, like facing backwards, right? Like you're on a train. I don't know who invented that, but it's like car, truck, awesome. It's awesomely terrible. And it's, it's probably closer to like this kind of brat, right? This is maybe the brat you kind of are thinking of when we, when we talk about the spoiled brats here in Matthew chapter 11. You might be looking at the text going, where is he going with this? But. I promise you, it's right here in the text. Now, perhaps you never heard of the parable of the spoiled brats, but I believe that it offers us this morning some profound insight about Jesus' teaching about the nature of unbelief. Now, let's look at Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 16, as Jesus teaches us. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, I want to suggest to you that the message of this parable is that not believing in Christ is totally irrational. I believe that very few people really have an intellectual problem with the gospel, but that most who disbelieve have a moral problem with it. The gospel is a call for people to repent of their sins and to live righteously. And that is not a popular message. And because most unbelievers won't acknowledge that they sin, let alone that they love their sin and they love to participate in it and have no intentions of quitting, we find that many sinners use other excuses for the rejection of Christianity, often pseudo-intellectual reasons. Now, in this parable, Jesus is dealing with people who have rejected John the Baptist and are in the process of rejecting him as well. And for no better reasons than the skeptics of our days say that they reject Christ. So let's set the context of our story this morning. Jesus, right before this, has given his divine affirmation of John the Baptist. And John, Jesus tells us, is a prophet. But even more than a prophet, he's the greatest of the Old Testament saints. Yet John was not appreciated in his day. On the contrary, it was mostly the scum of the society who responded to his preaching and repented of their sins. There's a very interesting addition to Matthew's account that is found in the parallel passage in Luke 7. So so stick your finger in Matthew 11, flip over a couple books to Luke chapter 7, verse 28. Now we find the same statement that's made in Matthew 11, verse 11. And it says this, I tell you, among those born of women, 
There is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And in verse 31 in the parable of the spoiled brats, which we just read, it's also repeated. But notice what comes between verse 29 and verse 30. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Now, to me, that's one of the saddest statements in the Bible, that they rejected God's purposes for themselves. God's purpose for their life was good. His purpose was for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. God's purpose was for fulfillment, joy, and a peace that passes all understanding. But they rejected it all because they refused to be baptized by John. And why did they refuse this baptism of repentance? They didn't think they had anything to repent of. After all, they were the most religious people in the land. They knew the, word, the law. They knew God's word forwards and backwards. They kept all the rites, all the rituals with the utmost care. They tithed regularly. But tragically, they miss out on God's purpose for their life. You know, this tells us that there's going to be a lot of religious people in hell. There's going to be a lot of tithers in hell. Because only those who repent of their sins and receive forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ will be allowed to spend eternity with God. Now, Jesus compares these religious leaders to spoiled little brats in the marketplace. The marketplace was the center of community life. It was where everything happened. People worked there. They brought their goods to buy and sell. Children played there in the marketplace. And, and a group of little children... Now, now these aren't the spoiled brats in the story. Just, just to get confused. Just because they're kids doesn't mean they're brats, right? These kids decide to play wedding. Right? They're in the marketplace and they're like, we're going to play wedding. And they choose a girl to be the bride and a boy to be the groom. And they find a preacher. And they start singing a wedding march. But these spoiled brats, these religious leaders, they say, that's silly little girl stuff. We're not playing that game. Okay. The little children respond, well, we'll play funeral instead. You don't like the happy stuff, maybe you like the sad stuff. And they chose someone to be the funeral director and, and someone... Some kids to be the pallbearers, right? And they, they find a little corpse, somebody to lay really still. And they begin to sing their sad, their funeral hymns, and they march through the marketplace. But they're soon drowned out by the loud protests from these spoiled little brats. Cut it out, we say, say. We don't want any of this sad stuff. So a petty quarrel develops in which the children who suggested the games are saying to these spoiled little brats, you guys are never satisfied. You don't want to play wedding. You don't want to play funeral. What is it that will make you happy? What do you want to play? Now Jesus drives home the point of this parable by saying to the crowds, and particularly to these religious leaders, you guys are so childish. Nothing we do makes you happy. 
John came living like a hermit. You called him a crazy person and said he was demon-possessed. And then I come and I eat and drink like normal people. I attend weddings and parties. I freely associate with sinners. And, and your response to me is what? You call me a glutton and a drunkard. Clearly, all you're doing is making excuses for your unbelief. There's no logic, no reasonableness in their position. They simply do not want to believe the truth. And they, like many around us, make up reasons for rejecting it. Frankly, I think if Jesus were speaking to us today, he he might say it a little differently. He might say, you know, you guys hear the gospel and you consistently bring up excuses like, what about those who never get to hear the gospel? I, I couldn't believe in a God that doesn't allow some people to hear. Or how could a good God send anyone to hell? I could never believe in a God like that. Or I, I know, what about all these bad things that are happening in the world? How can we worship a God who lets bad things happen? Or maybe the excuse is, how can you believe the earth was created when so many scientists believe in evolution? Or maybe your objection sounds like this. There's too many hypocrites in the church. Oh, the church is too emotional, too intellectual, too large, too small, too evangelistic, not evangelistic enough. The chairs aren't straight enough. It's too doctrinal. There's too much theology. There's not enough theology. And the irony is when one of the issues is addressed, you think up three more to justify your rejection of the gospel. And in the end, Jesus is saying that kind of skepticism and that kind of cynicism gets you nowhere. Only the truth of the gospel will produce lasting results in your life. Now, Jesus actually personifies wisdom in the end of this passage. He says, wisdom is proved right by her actions. Wisdom doesn't need your approval. It doesn't need you to commend her. For the deeds of those who accept her, vindicate her. Right? In the South, they say the proof is in the pudding. Right? Pudding, not pudding. Pudding. Fun to talk about. And it's amazing because John the Baptist's preaching has produced significant change in many people's lives. But this attitude of the religious leaders, the works that they pursued, brought nothing of lasting value. Their efforts were completely in vain. Now let's look at verses 20 through 24. Jesus says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works have been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. 
Now, this passage is quite similar to the one we find back in chapter 10 where Jesus sends out the 12 disciples and he tells, he tells them, if you're not received in a town or a village, when you leave that place, turn and shake the dust off your feet. I tell you the truth, he says, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. This is the same kind of judgment that's pronounced not just on those who refused to show hospitality to the apostles, but also to those cities where Jesus did most of his miracles. Now, what's the basis for this judgment? It's because they did not repent. They were not willing to turn from their sins. And the miracles of Jesus were a testimony to the presence of the divine in their very midst. So the people who saw them should have asked themselves, where they stood with God. But they didn't. Jesus declares, woe, which is an expression of regret and a warning on these three particular cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And their judgment is compared to three other cities, Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. Jesus tells us that if these miracles that he was doing were performed in those th- that were performed in those three Jewish cities were performed in the Gentile cities, that those people would have repented long ago and in sackcloth and ashes. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were towns four miles apart from each other. They were kind of a triangle on the north of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did most of his earthly ministry. Chorazin was actually home to one of the earliest synagogues. But it's really only mentioned here and in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 10, 13. And it's a reminder of how little we actually know about the full ministry of Jesus. That we have literally this one reference to this town where Jesus did extensive ministry and tons of miracles while he walked on the earth. Now the small fishing village of Bethsaida was the home of three of Jesus' disciples, Philip, Andrew, and Peter. And it was the place where Jesus healed the blind man, where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. And then Capernaum, it's actually one of the most frequently mentioned towns in the New Testament. It was kind of the the home base for Jesus' ministry, as we call it. Uh, In Capernaum, Jesus found the first disciples. Uh, He taught in the most elaborate synagogue in Galilee. He, He lived in Peter's house. He healed the sick. He did all these things. In other words, these, these three cities had an incredible amount of evidence as to the power of God and the person of the Messiah. And it had them directly in their midst. There was every reason to think of its inhabitants as the most likely to believe in who Jesus was. The cities of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, on the other hand, represent the most likely not to believe. These cities were ancient strongholds of paganism, idolatry, and hostility towards the people of God. They were all denounced. All three cities are denounced by the prophets for their wickedness. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, all these prophets denounced these cities. Ezekiel 28 describes the people of Tyre as proud and conceited, as overwhelmingly wicked. Sodom, of course, as most of us know, is the city on the plain of Jordan described in Genesis chapter 19. It was so wicked that God rained down burning sulfur from heaven and destroyed it so completely 
that we still to this day do not know where that city actually was. We can find no remnants of it. But notice that Jesus says that even these horrible, sin-filled cities would have repented long before if they would have seen Jesus in action. Tyre and Sidon would have grieved over their sin, and Sodom would have escaped the destruction of God. They would have acknowledged who He was. They would have gotten down on their hands and knees before God, and they would have repented of their sins. Please note that Jesus does not say that they will not be punished for their sins. He simply says that on Judgment Day, those who have had greater opportunities, the people of His own day who saw His miracles, will be judged more severely. This passage perhaps has relevance to the problem of those who have never heard the Gospel. All unbelievers will not experience the same degree of suffering in hell. People will be judged based on the knowledge that they have received. But what does this say to us here this morning? Who have more knowledge, more books, more churches, more opportunities, and more resources than any other time in history. We are heaping judgment upon ourselves if we do not repent. And just as the spiritual leaders of Israel were so jaded in their unbelief that they acted like spoiled little brats and rejected John the Baptist because he was an ascetic and rejected Jesus because he was not, so the towns where Jesus conducted most of his ministry were jaded in their unbelief as well. It was not a matter of evidence. They didn't need more proof. They had more evidence than any city has ever had. They had Jesus in their midst, day by day, walking amongst them. Their sin clouded their minds and caused them to make these irrational excuses for their unbelief. Now let's look at verses 25 through 27, which record a really brief prayer of Jesus expressing his thankfulness to the Father and also a reflection on the relationship between him and the Father. Starting in verse 25, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now the key to understanding the connection between this paragraph and what comes before is the phrase, these things, in verse 25. What things is Jesus saying have been hidden? I believe he's talking about the truth that all of his miracles pointed to. That Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the entire world. Now I don't think he's telling us that God makes it impossible for intelligent people to understand the gospel. But he does make it impossible for them to understand through their normal way of thinking. And through their normal way of acquiring knowledge. Scientific investigation will never reveal ultimate truth. Because the pursuit of power, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of knowledge will never in and of themselves result in finding God. 
If that were true, then the brilliant and the powerful and those who had the most resources would have a leg up on everyone else. Instead, God has made it so that everyone who approaches His throne has to come the same way, with the faith of a little child. This, of course, does not mean that all the wise, all the knowledgeable, all the powerful are lost, that they can't be saved. But it does mean that the knowledge of God does not depend on human wisdom or human understanding. Don't forget that 1 Corinthians chapter 1.26 does not say not any of you were wise by human standards, not any were influential, not any were of noble birth. Rather, it says not many. Brothers and sisters, the deep things of God are not discovered with the mind alone, no matter how sharp it is. The things of God are also not discovered with emotions alone or feelings, no matter how sensitive you think they are. The things of God are illuminated to the people of God in a spiritual way through the Holy Spirit. And it's given to us as He is pleased to reveal it. It was God's good pleasure that the young, the lowly, the weak, the despised could all find the truth. And that if the clever were to find the truth, it would be in the same way as all the rest. Jesus' prayer is short, and he now addresses the disciples on a really difficult topic. If God, he, if God hid the truth from some and revealed it to others, that must mean that he is sovereign in the salvation process. People aren't saved by chance or by osmosis or by research or by intuition. They are saved as God sovereignly chooses them, calls them, reveals himself to them, and redeems them. Look again at verse 27. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal to Him. Jesus is here claiming the closest possible relationship one can have with the Father. He has a unique relationship that no one else can have. He has perfect, intimate, real knowledge of God. And this is in stark contrast to what the religious leaders thought they had, who praised Him with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. And it says the Father has the same kind of knowledge about Jesus Christ. Jesus also makes this claim to have the sole power to reveal to the Father the truth to us. In essence, Jesus, Jesus is adding to His well-known claim in John 14.6. That no one comes to the Father except through Him. He's adding this additional truth. No one knows the Father unless Jesus has revealed Him to you. Now that's a difficult thing for many of us to accept. Because it sounds maybe a little too much like the doctrines of election and predestination. And, and indeed, it does sound a little bit like that. But that is no reason to reject what Jesus is saying here. The fact of the matter is that the Scriptures are always incredibly balanced. 
And nowhere do we see that more clearly than right here as we look at this last paragraph in Matthew chapter 11. Let's look at verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love that this particular promise comes immediately after one of the strongest statements Jesus can make about the sovereignty of God and salvation. Look again at verse 27. No one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. God is in absolute control. If God doesn't reveal Himself to you, you are toast. But then immediately... We find these words, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He doesn't leave anyone out. He doesn't say, come to me, all you to whom the Son chooses to reveal to the Father. That wouldn't be encouraging at all. Because a person might think, well, how do I know if I'm one of the chosen? But instead, he says, come to me, all you who who are weary and burdened. And that includes every single one of us. Some people love to fight over theology. They love to have these discussions. Is God completely sovereign? Or is man completely responsible and free? And, and the scriptures just quietly respond, yes. <laughs> yes, God is sovereign. And yes, man is responsible and free. Can anyone come to the Father unless the Father first reveals Himself to that person? No. Will God turn away anyone who wants to know Him personally? No. Does God choose us before we choose Him? Yes. And it is also true that whosoever will may come. Amen? The promise of rest for the weary is one of the most comforting passages in all the Bible. Jesus' offer is eternally more beneficial to each one of us than the remedies of our culture offer. You do not need to take more vacation time or just ignore your problems and, and hope they go away. You do not need to just exercise more and spend more time in nature. Jesus does not say to people who are exhausted, just go find rest on your own. Or take a sedative. Or just, just spend some time meditating. Or, you know, you really need to just tough it out. Jesus says to each one of us, come to me. Jesus knows exactly what each one of you are going through. He knows your trials. He knows how tired you are. He knows how stressed out and overwhelmed you feel. He knows if your bank account is overdrawn and the creditors are calling every day. He knows if you are hurt or you're angry because your parents or your family is falling apart. He knows if you've been looking unsuccessfully for a job for, for several months. And he knows if your education fund has evaporated amidst the stock market for the last few years. 
He knows if you've been diagnosed with cancer. And he knows if your mother or father has Alzheimer's and they don't remember who you are. And he says to us anyways, come to me and I will give you rest. What kind of rest is Jesus offering? Is he going to pay your bills so you don't lose your house? Maybe. Will he cure your disease? Maybe. Will he restore your family? Perhaps, but none of, none of that is promised by him. What might surprise you about Jesus' offer is that he doesn't say, come to me and I will take away your burden. He says instead, come to me and exchange your burden for a better one. It's still a burden, but it's easier. And he speaks of his own yoke that he wants us to carry. Now, the yoke is the apparatus that is put on a team of animals to pull heavy loads. And Jesus takes one side of the yoke, and we take the other side. And with his help, we can pull our load easier. In Jesus' day, the yoke was a symbol for obedience and submission to authority and the discipline of discipleship. When Jesus says, my yoke is easy and I will give you rest, he means it in the sense that his yoke is a better obedience. It's a better life. It's not your best life now, but it's a better life. One that is with him. And rather than just enduring the heavy burdens of life, the result of taking Jesus' yoke is that we can have a heart that is refreshed and renewed vigor to, to face the trials and the, and the struggles of this world. Let me use an illustration that I, I believe will shed some light on the difference between these two kinds of yokes. The one that the world thrusts on us and the one that Jesus offers us. And I'll do so by asking you the following question. Would you rather work for $100 an hour or $10 an hour? Seems like a stupid question. Where's he going with this? Now, most of you would choose, obviously, to make $100 an hour, right? It would be great. But, just wait a minute, because I don't think you have all the information that you need to make a wise decision. You don't know what kind of work you're doing. Ah. What if the work for $100 an hour was chopping wood with a Swiss Army knife? Think about that for a minute, how delightful that would be. Most of us would probably make it about 15 minutes before we threw in the towel. Right? We'd make our 25 bucks and be like, I'm out. I am not going to chop wood with a Swiss Army knife. But what if the $10 an hour job was something that was meaningful and rewarding and gave you great joy every single day as you woke up to do it? I don't believe any of us could chop wood with a Swiss Army knife for more than an hour or two. Maybe some of you real strapping folks or just really stubborn people. <laughs> right? Not to mention how many Swiss Army knives you'd break. But the pay has nothing to do with it. We, as followers of Christ, have a desperate need to serve, to be productive, to make a difference. And Jesus is offering us that here. Because His yoke is more than relief from the trials of life that we all face. 
It is rest for your very soul. A deep, satisfying assurance that we are participating in the plans of God Himself and building the kingdom of God. Friends, don't be like these spoiled little brats in the marketplace. These religious leaders who every turn needed to find an excuse. Don't be like these cities of Israel that refused to believe despite incredible evidence. Come to Jesus and take His yoke and He promises that the burden will be easy and light. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus Christ, we, we thank You that You are a God who has offered us a different way, a better way. Lord, that when presented with the truth, that we don't have to find our own way, Lord, but You have already made the way. And You're offering us new life and a life with You. Jesus, You don't promise us a life without burden. But You do promise that the burden will be easier because we will have You. Lord, call our hearts to a place where we give everything to You because that burden and that yoke is far better than the one this world has to offer. Lord, we repent of our sins. We repent of our idolatry. We repent of being like these Pharisees and these cities who saw the truth and made excuse after excuse after excuse. Jesus, we need you. We need you. Take our burdens and may we lay them down at your feet and choose to follow you with our whole hearts. And it's in your beautiful name we say, Amen.